Welcome back to another edition of Inside Asia. I'm your host, Steve Stein. Coming up, the future of nature and business, a collaborative report that attempts to quantify the size of this new nature economy. In this episode, we ask, what exactly is it and how do we get a piece of it? According to the report's author, investment in nature-friendly initiatives has the potential to generate $10.1 trillion in recurring annual revenues and up to 395 million jobs by 2030. How ambitious is that? Very, I'd say. To pull it off, we need new levels of corporate and government coordination to target the right opportunities and incentivize the right players. Here to talk about it is Fraser Thompson, founder and managing director of Alpha Beta, a Singapore-based consulting firm specializing in strategy and economics. Fraser and his colleagues teamed up with the World Economic Forum to highlight sector-specific ways in which business might profit while enhancing biodiversity and reducing the impact of climate change. He joins me in this episode to explain how they arrive at these figures and what it will take to deliver on it. Fraser Thompson, thank you so much for joining us on Inside Asia. Uh, we are speaking today from Singapore by Zoom, but uh, I would like for you to share with us some work you've done recently on a report done in partnership with the World Economic Forum. Could you tell us about that? Thanks, thanks for having me today, Steve. So the report that we did uh, was called The Future of Nature and Business. And, and I think it's important just to, to spend a moment on, on the title because it is important. Uh, it's, it's not called the future of nature or business, it's the future of nature and business. And, and the starting point of this was to really understand what are the business implications from the biodiversity risks we face? Uh, and then what are the opportunities for how we could address them? There's been a lot of great scientific work that's been done recently that have talked about the various environmental dangers we face from biodiversity collapse, but very few have translated that into business terms. So that's where we really want to focus with this report is, is first of all, understand the, the size of the challenge that we face. And then secondly, to take a real business or CEO lens and say, well, what are the opportunities? How can we address them? And what does a new type of business interaction with nature actually look like? Yeah, it's interesting. The tone of this report, which is the second in a series that the World Economic Forum has sponsored, I guess the first one was called Nature Risk Rising, where it reported that over $44 trillion was at risk if we stayed the business as usual course. Uh, this report, the one you've worked on, seems to say, well, the opportunities are now available to us. We just need to focus the right resources and the right organizations uh, on the right uh, on, on the right, the right opportunities now. Is that generally where, how, you, how you took this up? Identifying by sector or by area where we could see the greatest results in the shortest period of time? It was, and, and as you said, the first report that looked at the, the risks that we face, and, and the numbers there are scary. The, the $44 trillion of, of global GDP uh, is, is at risk. That's about half of today's global GDP. Um, and that's a big number. So where does that come from? And, and just to give you a few examples, uh, in the Asia-Pacific region, uh, natural disasters in 2018 uh, impacted 50 million people and, and cost this region close to $57 billion. Um, and these, ex these disasters are exacerbated by environmental damage to our coastal ecosystems uh, that have previously played such an important role in, in flood management. Uh, then you get onto things such as pollinator populations uh, that have declined. Uh, and the risk to crop production, we're talking about up to $577 billion. So there's a range of uh, ecosystem services that business has relied upon for business as usual. And, and because we're so used to these, these services being provided, we tend not to think about it. But for the first time, we're actually seeing the severity of the challenge and realising that some of these ecosystem services that provide all these benefits are not necessarily going to be around if we continue this, this path that we're on. Uh, and just to give those, those numbers in, in, stark, um, uh, in stark imagination, if you like, nearly one million species are currently at risk of extinction uh, because of human activity. We, we really are at a crucial juncture in, in how we tackle these issues. So much of the debate right now is around climate change. And I was interested to see in your report, you draw an apparent distinction in, in between the preservation of our natural resources and then the impact of climate change. In other words, in combining the two, you see the extent to which we're in trouble. Can you say more about that? 
Sure. And I, I think the, the first point to make there is that climate change is a crucial issue uh, that we have to have to address. So by any means, this report is not saying that climate change shouldn't be a priority. In, in fact, what this pro, uh, report is saying is that uh, tackling climate change is necessary but not sufficient to address the nature risk that we're facing. Uh, there's been a lot of good scientific research has been done uh, recently, uh, including from the International Panel of Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, and they had hundreds of different acclaimed scientists from all around the world look at these issues. Uh, and when they looked at the different biodiversity threats that we face, uh, we, they saw that climate change is, of course, a big one and it'll become increasingly important. But there's also massive changes that are going on to land use systems, to water systems, and various other aspects of nature that are also really important to address. So this report tries to take a bit of a broader lens and says, well, yes, we have to address climate change, but what are the additional uh, nature risks that we also have to tackle if we're really gonna safeguard our, our planet's resources? Yeah, Fraser, your, your quantifying of the risks and the opportunities was uh, extraordinary. Uh, could you help us understand a bit more of your methodology for landing on the key numbers? Sure. So just to give you a recap of what those those big numbers are. Uh, so first of all, we talk about a, uh, a prize in 2013, a business opportunity of uh, $10 trillion. Um, and that's an annual opportunity in 2030. Uh, also, by that time, there is the potential to create over 395 million new jobs. Now, how do we get to that number? Basically, in, uh, we looked at three key what we call socioeconomic systems. Uh, there's food, land, and ocean use. The second one is infrastructure in the built environment. And the third one is energy and extractives. Now, the reason that we started with those three systems is that when we looked at the biodiversity risks we were facing, we saw it was those three systems that really stand out as being playing crucial roles in driving the biodiversity threats that we, we, uh, we face today, but also a big part of the potential solution. And then what we did in each of those systems, we spent uh, the better part of uh, almost a year uh, working with business leaders, working with investors, uh, working with entrepreneurs to understand what are those opportunities that could address biodiversity risks uh, and that could uh, have a business opportunity. And that's really important. There's lots of opportunities that we could look at where there's no business role. Uh, and so they may have things that we should be doing, but the internal rate of return may not be there, uh, or there may be a series of other challenges which make it very hard for the private sector to, to get involved. So that was a, a key filter, if you like, of looking for opportunities where there was a real potential business case. Now, it's important to stress that there's still barriers in the way of these opportunities. If there wasn't, obviously, we'd, we'd go after them already. There's, there's challenges around behavioural change. There's challenging around mixed incentives. Uh, there's a whole range of uh, challenges in the supply chain. But nonetheless, these were opportunities that had the potential for private sector engagement. So in each one of those systems, we did, if you like, that kind of bottom-up um, identification of the opportunities. And then we looked at a variety of different uh, literature that was out there that tried to quantify how big an opportunity they could be. And we looked at two scenarios. One is, if you like, business as usual, because some of these opportunities will continue to develop regardless of, of what we do. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, one is around technology in large-scale farms. Um, so we've increasingly seen the adoption of things like precision agriculture in large-scale farms that improve in productivity of farms. But there's an opportunity to push that much at a much faster rate than we are doing today. And so we looked at that upside about what's beyond business as usual that we could see in each of these opportunities. And that, that $10 trillion is all that upside, if you like, beyond business as usual. And it includes revenues from new market opportunities. Uh, so for example, the development of alternative proteins. It can include cost savings. Um, so maybe around circular economy models that we're seeing in the automotive sectors and the, the cost savings that that could produce for automotive producers. So it's a, a range of different things that are built into that. But coming back to the starting point, all of them were identified as having a clear business opportunity. Did you discover uh, as you were going through this areas of prioritization? In other words, 
uh, categories where you felt there was the highest probability of collaboration and cooperation between business, government, and other, and society in order to get the results necessary? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And a lot of the opportunities vary uh, in multiple dimensions. So first of all, they vary in terms of their geographical importance. So we see, particularly in the agricultural opportunities, perhaps not surprisingly, we see a lot of the smallholder opportunities in, in Africa. Um, if we look at, uh, say, around infrastructure in the built environment, a lot of the biggest opportunities are, are here in Asia, which just reflects the, the huge urbanisation wave that we're, we're in at the moment. Can you give an example of that, Fraser, within the infrastructure and, and built environment space? Yeah, one example at the moment is, is around um, smart buildings. So if you look around just retrofitting buildings and installing more energy efficient technology in new builds, uh, we talked about roughly $825 billion of opportunity globally uh, by 2030. Uh, and over half of that is, is in Asia and switching to LEDs, substituting natural light, um, it, it can produce all these kind of savings. Uh, and, and one of the reasons why it's so important, if you, if you look at that urbanization wave, we're seeing not only the growth here in Asia of these, these mega cities, these ones over 5 million population, of which we're very familiar, you know, the likes here in Southeast Asia of the, the Bangkoks, the Manilas, the Jakartas, but it's increasing this growth of these middleweight cities. So these are the cities from one to 5 million that are really having the fastest growth. And, and, and there's a real opportunity to shape the trajectory of these and how we think about urban planning. And that obviously goes beyond buildings. It, it's around the way we think about mobility, it's around the way we think about waste management. Uh, it's around the way we think about uh, water efficiency. So take um, municipal water efficiency. There's a huge amount of leakage we still see in many pipes, which is, a, which is in some ways a very quick win that can be addressed with new technologies. So this is, the, I guess, why Asia is particularly important infrastructure and built environment. And, and why when we think about these opportunities, we talk about the global list, that depending on what part of the world you are, those set of priorities will look very different and hence the starting point for engagement will look different too. So for instance, you look at, and I think you cite in the report, the idea that urbanization is a foregone conclusion. I think there's, there's a statistics or something to the effect of about 1.5 million people will be added to cities every year between now and 2030. So it's just a matter of not trying to encourage or reverse that trend but instead to identify ways of managing the increase with combination of technologies, uh, more thoughtful design, um, other things that are available to us. In other words, you're not suggesting we need to reverse or change the way we're doing things. You're just suggesting this is what can be done in order to better manage what is going to happen anyway. Is that correct? It, it is. And look, there, there's, a, there's a big debate at the moment that says, Look, with, with COVID, are we going to see a fundamental change in our uh, relationship with urbanisation? Um, and I, I would challenge that view, that I think we may see some changes in um, certain cities. So even here in Singapore, as, as you'll be aware, Steve, that the government is, is having a discussion about different models of urbanisation um, that get you, if you like, sort of clusters within cities uh, that think about a more resilient urban system as they go forward. And, that, and that's not just for COVID, that's for a range of other benefits such as traffic congestion and so forth. So I do think we'll see different urban models develop, but it urbanisation itself is a much longer standing process uh, that is, is not going to be hugely affected uh, by what we're seeing now. Um, and and urbanisation, we should remember, is the single biggest driver of economic growth. It, it takes people from lower productivity agricultural jobs to higher productivity urban jobs. And on average, someone doing that switch is four times more productive in a city. But then as cities get bigger, they also get more productive. So as you go from a city of, say, 400,000 people to 800,000 people, the average productivity increases by 8%, which is a huge uplift. So, so urbanisation is crucial. It's a fundamental part of the economic development process and, and it will continue. The question before us is, is it going to be the same model of urbanisation that we've seen in the past, which has been incredibly land intensive, incredibly resource inefficient? Or can we think about a new model of urbanisation uh, that can not only strengthen the environment, but also improve the resilience uh, to future pandemics and, and future challenges that we may face? 
this is one of the parts of the report which really shocked and concerned me. Um, just the inefficiencies in urban development. Um, wastewater, for instance, 80% of wastewater is flushed out into, uh, into aqueducts and, and aquifers and, and polluting the, the water system, surrounding water systems. Uh, the impact on biodiversity, the degradation of land and surrounding wetlands. I mean, it goes on and on and on. These are things we've known for decades. It's not, uh, oh, right, we missed that. They've known this. Is this the failure of government to hold uh, developers and businesses accountable for the damage they're causing? It, it, it's a big question that you're asking, and, and there's lots of factors, I think, that go into it. There's, I think if, if I was to be take sort of the, the positive uh, perspective on this, I'd say that a lot of the things that were barriers in the past are starting to shift. So one of the biggest challenges in the past is that you haven't had local leadership to drive changes. So in, in particularly in emerging markets, there was no local governance uh, of, of, with significant decision-making power that could drive change. Now we're increasingly seeing mayors and, and local city officials with increasing powers to make decisions, to raise funds and, and to drive change. And that gives me actually the biggest hope that we'll start to see some real shifts happen. The second thing that's gone alongside that is a, a, a massive improvement in, in some of these new technologies that are highly relevant to cities. Uh, and so take something as mundane as, as, as water leakage. Uh, so in, in Cambodia, um, in Phnom Penh, there was a huge issue with, with water leakage um, that was leading to over half of water municipal water being lost. Uh, but with new technologies, which are not particularly advanced, they were able to identify um, through various digital center, sensors where exactly those leakage were taking place and then to address them and, and to get uh, now leakage rates, which are some of the, the best in the world. So there's a, a range of really practical technologies that are now available. And when combined with this strengthening local, uh, local leadership, I think this is why we're in a different place than if we, we were even talking 10, 15 years ago. Let's let's take that in two parts to, to the point on on local leadership. I think there is some hope there, but at the same time, there are uh, no shortage of petty bureaucrats and corrupt officials still operating in the fields, making frontline decisions and lining their pockets. We we know this is true. Uh, it's not spoken about openly, uh, but particularly across the emerging markets. I don't even say that it's more institutionalized in developed markets, but we see it everywhere. So if you empower people on the front line and the uh, the economics aren't such that they can avoid or stay away from corruption, what hope do we have that uh, shortcuts aren't going to be taken and with every good intention, uh, the problems will continue to occur? That's one question. And, and then we'll come back to technology in a, minute, uh, in, in a minute. What would you say about that first point? Look, I, I think corruption issues is, is something that, uh, that we will continue to deal with. So none of this will, will disappear. I think that the bigger issue, though, that I've seen is actually not corruption. Um, it, is, it is more around the capacity at the local level to drive change. Um, and we've done a lot of work here with separate pieces, particularly in Southeast Asia, working with cities. And there's some really ambitious uh, and quite talented uh, local leaders of these cities, uh, but they struggle, particularly with the, the next level down of, uh, of bureaucracy, that they just don't have the right kind of capabilities in the civil service to, to drive change. And, and this can be just as simple as uh, project planning. So if you take waste management, which is a massive issue here in, in Southeast Asia, particularly in plastics, and we know that um, six of the ASEAN 10 member states are some of the biggest um, contributors to ocean plastics in the world, um, and it's, it's fundamentally a city-level problem. And when you look at that and say, well, why don't we have closed-loop systems in, um, in, in the plastic space? Um, and you have to start off with, say, well, how, how do we think about the waste management system, all the parts of the value chain from from design to collection to reuse and recycling. Uh, and what you quickly realise is that there's the lack of those skills, which means that a lot of cities fall back on the easiest option, which is around incineration, uh, which has a, a whole range of, of negative uh, economic impacts. So th for me, I'm, I'm not saying that governance and, and corruption issues are, are not important. They, they definitely are. But the, the bigger issue I've seen is, is this capacity gap. 
Um, and we've still got a long way to go to get that. But I hope that that's one of the, you know, when I think about global intervention areas, that we, we work out that, uh, that approach to give the right kind of capacity support to those local leaders to, to drive these kind of changes. Fraser, when you say shortage of skills, do you mean general awareness or just competency and training, uh, education? I mean, I know it, it could vary in different places, but generally, uh, or, or is, it, is it the inability for, or the unwillingness to collaborate uh, and communicate up the chain? Where is the... Uh, the point of, of, of demarcation uh, in your mind and, and what skill sets specifically do you think would be most essential in order to turn the tide? Look, there's skill gaps in, in many different areas, but for me, the, the, the single biggest area is around project planning skills. So basically the set of skills that allows someone to say, right, what's the problem we face and, and really what's the root cause of that? Um, and that's that's important that we see a lot of cities go wrong is that they misdiagnose the problem in the first place. And so they end up treating the symptoms rather than the root cause of the issue. So you take waste management, for example, they'll say, well, actually, the, the key issue is we, the, we need to get more collection bins. Um, but that's, that's not the key issue. The key issue can really be about there's no incentives across the whole value chain uh, to actually think about recycling uh, or there's no awareness in the broader population about why they should be thinking about this in the first place. So that kind of starting point of really understanding the root causes um, is important. That second step then of saying, well, what are the different options and how do I, how do I set the criteria um, for evaluating those different options to address that root cause issue? Um, and then third, then well, how do I put in place the, the phased plan and milestones that any investors uh, or donors are going to expect uh, to give them comfort around around funding this. And what I'm mentioning there is, is, is not rocket science and these kind of skills we see with good urban planners all around the world, but in many of these rapidly growing, particularly these middleweight cities, that's where we see some of the biggest dearth of these skills. So if I had sort of a wish list of, of where it would be great to see some capability building, it would be around those, those set of project management skills. Let's come to the technology point. Um, why isn't technology being deployed as quickly and effectively as it could? Is it requiring government support, uh, reduction on, on foreign direct investment or tariffs, uh, or is it just simply um, finding the right price point? Is it, is it more of an economic question at this stage? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. We, we looked at particularly the role of 4IR technologies, so fourth industrial revolution technologies, um, and, and what was interesting is that we saw that in 87% of the business opportunities we identified, um, these kind of 4IR technologies actually had either a critical role or a strong, if you like, enabler role in, in driving change. Um, and, and just to give you sort of examples just to, to, to bring this to life, in, um, in ag tech, we see that ag tech is incredibly important for, for driving change um, around precision agriculture, but also Internet of Things across the supply chain to, to reduce wastage. Um, however, at the moment, um, investment in ag tech really lags. So yeah, agriculture represents roughly 10% of global GDP, uh, but only um, less than 4% of global venture capital funds are, are directed to this area. So there's a, there's a gap, if you like, to start, at, to start with in the actual investment in relevant technologies to apply them in, in many of these areas. What would be required in order to jumpstart that? Were there government grants or incentives? Is it just private sector uh, know-how and, and, and willingness and commitment to, if you will, create skunk works or new projects to, to explore whether or not those technologies could create a step change? There's a, a, f a few different things that go into it and it does vary by opportunity. So it's, it's difficult to generalise across the board here, but I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you about a few examples that uh, I've seen that, that represent some of these challenges. So in some cases, you see uh, an, a capital investment challenge. So, so take a, a modern cold storage system, uh, which is incredibly important for reducing uh, food waste. Uh, now, that can cost up to $120 million, um, and that's a huge scale of investment that requires collaboration um, uh, with multiple actors to, to justify that. You see a second set of areas is that the, the price signals for change often get 
um, diluted because of the various subsidies in the market um, that, that change up price signals and incentives for, for people to drive change. Uh, then you see, thirdly, the, the kind of the, the data issues around, there's a whole set of issues around data governance, data sharing across different actors. And, and that includes government data uh, and being able to be shared with the private sector and, 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 and vice versa. Now, we're, we're starting to see models that are looking into that, but they're very nascent. And that's something we call attention to in the report of this kind of data governance models are, are crucially important here. And, and particularly if you look at a, an area like agriculture, there is a huge amount of government data from um, satellite data on weather um, to even data around prices of different commodities that are incredibly valuable. And then if, if combined with the right kind of technologies, could really drive significant improvements across the value chain. But we, we don't see that to date. So there's, there's lots of other issues that, um, that depend on the specific opportunities we're talking about, but those are, those are some that I would call out as being particularly important. Yeah, thanks, Fraser. Let, let's go back to a minute. You've, you've touched on two of the three, food, land, ocean use, and infrastructure and built environment. The third you raise in your report is what you call nature positive extracts and energy systems. Could you tell us a little bit about that and uh, what are some of the implications of changing the way we generate, uh, search for, generate and, and distribute energy? Yeah, so the energy and extractive system uh, is, is crucial and represents around about a quarter of global GDP um, and a bit less, about 16% of global employment. So it's, it's economically important. It's also uh, in a, on a trajectory at the moment, which is not sustainable. Uh, we, we obviously see that from a, a carbon standpoint, and uh, we've heard all the talk about the stranded assets, basically really high carbon emitting assets, that if we start to see real change on uh, tackling carbon emissions, these will um, effectively be rendered obsolete um, and, and basically a sunk cost. But there's a huge amount of damage we see to the environment as well. So just when you're opening up a new mine, for example, that one road that you open up for a mine leads to deforestations for hundreds and thousands of hectares all surrounding that area because as soon as you give access, you start to see um, a bit like a virus and like this, this growth in, in deforestation and biodiversity loss all around that. So it's, it's an incredibly important sector from a biodiversity standpoint. When we looked at the opportunities there's a range of important opportunities. So the first one I'll talk about is, is mining and resource extraction. So things such as like resource recovery in extraction can be um, a, a massive driver and save up to $225 billion in 2030. And at the moment, we see that many mining operations, they don't fully recover all the, the resources from that particular mine site. And then they move on to the next site and cause a whole set of destruction from the installation um, of mining operations and those components. So a lot of this is around how do we maximize the efficiency, utilization of the, the appropriate technologies that can ensure that we fully extract um, the resources from, from one site before we, we move on to the next. Um, and there's good examples in oil and gas. Uh, we see, you know, Norway actually took the lead on this in oil and gas of, of putting in place strong regulatory systems combined with really quite focused R&D to improve the extraction rates um, in, in each of their drill sites. Then you look at water usage and, and mining resource extraction, incredibly water intensive. And we show that there's potential to reduce water usage by 75% um, in the next decade from these kind of operations. So th th that area that value chain could be transformed. Then you go further down the value chain and then there's a huge opportunity for circular economy models. So the circular economy, as, as many of us are familiar with, is this, this attempt to basically move from a linear system where we uh, produce, we use, and we um, throw into something there where we reuse, we reduce, and we recycle um, all of these materials. Uh, now, this is actually becoming incredibly more advanced recently, driven by urbanisation, which makes circular economy models easier to do, but also technology. So things like Internet of Things, you can now track um, a whole lot of these items and, and much, make much greater use of them at a much lower cost. And, and in Africa, we saw examples like Hello Tractor, which is basically just an asset sharing scheme of tractors uh, and with Internet of Things technology and mobile, 
this is very low cost to actually enable. So those are some of the opportunities we've seen. And, and of course, there's renewables, which we, we could just <laughs> have a whole segment just talking about the growth of renewables. And I think the exciting thing here in Asia is just seeing the, the rapid growth in, in solar technologies that have gone beyond subsidies um, and now matching fossil fuel costs um, in, in a range of countries and, and will soon be cheaper than, than coal in um, both China and India. So these are exciting developments. But again, if, if we have the right kind of regulatory and business leadership in there, we'll move them at a much faster pace. Well, you may have just touched on the ultimate point because I hear you saying we have the technology, we have the data, we have the know-how. Uh, we oftentimes have at least political structures, if not political will. Uh, and yet the same business as usual methodology continues apace with the full knowledge that biodiversity is at risk and climate change is upon us. What is it going to take, Fraser, in order to turn the tide on this to such a degree that we actually can begin to demonstrate a general and global willingness to do something now before it's too late? So there's, there's this whole series of, of actions we should be looking at, right? And of course, there is a typically we're focused on what governments should be doing. And, and we know some of that, that prescription list is that we, we need to unwind some of these inefficient resource subsidies, which are a huge cost to, to governments, are actually not progressive payments at all and could be much better targeted to, to those who really need them. Um, and the blunt these would, be, these would be subsidies to oil and gas or fossil fuel industry industries, things like that. Is that right? Exactly. And it's it's interesting when we focus on subsidies, we we tend to think just of energy subsidies, but there's huge amount of subsidies that go into fisheries, that go into um, agriculture more broadly, and that also go into water. So water is one of the most heavily subsidised resources in the world. And, and you can say, well, of course, you know, we should subsidise water, um, but it does lead to incredible inefficiencies particularly in heavy operations, because the, the cost of the water doesn't reflect its, its scarcity value. So that there is that, that bigger shift we need, obviously, from governments to, to think about changing the, the, the price signals, if you like. It also needs to go with how we measure things. Uh, and we often talk about how GDP is, is not the right measure, but it's the best we've got. But it's not just about changing GDP measures. It's about bringing in new data sets that that actually show the risk that we're, face, we're facing. Uh, I think it's great now that we're seeing many central banks that are starting to mandate for firms to, to show their true exposure to climate change risk. I think those are helpful. And the more transparency we can build into this system uh, is going to be an important enabler for driving change. So there's all those aspects of government support will be crucial. And I haven't mentioned other topics like spatial planning, skills development, and so forth. But what we tried to focus on this report We'll say, well, what can businesses do? Because I think it's sometimes too easy for businesses just to um, kick the can down the road and say, well, you know, if, until we see big change of governments, there's not, not much we can do. Uh, and I would challenge that. The starting point for businesses is, is, first of all, that we talk about 15 transitions in this report. Identifying which of those transitions are relevant for them is crucial. The second step is that there's a a set of voluntary corporate policies and best practices that every company should be able to do, but not many are. Uh, and I'll give you an example of this. Uh, so if you look at uh, deforestation risks, there was research that came out recently that showed of the companies that 500 companies most exposed to deforestation risks, um, only 242 of them, so less than half, have made any public commitment to end deforestation. Uh, and so this kind of action is increasingly irresponsible. Um, and is, is not consistent with long-term value creation for investors e either. So why is that, Fraser? Why, why if, if, if organizations that have a vested interest in doing something about this or, or can contribute something positive, is it just lack of awareness or is it just not on the list of priorities or is there is an economic uh, penalty if they were to step up and do things like this that could undermine uh, their, their, their profits and, and their results? I think the answer varies depending on what um, what type of company you're speaking to and what part of the world. So I'll give you some of the excuses that I've seen and, I'll, and, and tell you why I think they're increasingly flawed. Uh, so one, one excuse that gets mentioned a lot is that, well, there's a first mover disadvantage in here. 
So why would I move ahead of my peer companies that are not going to um, drive this change um, and, and then take a penalty or, uh, as, as a result? I, I should be the laggard here and continue to uh, do business as usual for as, as long as possible. We hear that a lot, and I hear that a lot actually here in Asia. Um, and that, again, I think is, is, is a flawed assumption. And it's flawed from the fact that, one, this is around needing to build resilience now in, in supply chains and operations, and that, that $44 trillion, that's going to take a, a, a huge number of companies by surprise that don't have those kind of processes in place. And you can't do that overnight. But secondly, I think it also gets you into a different kind of competitive advantage discussion. Now, if you take Unilever, for example, Unilever has been quite proactive um, in making sure that its supply chain is developing and, and um, adopting some of these more sustainable approaches. And, and then Unilever has also been quite active in lobbying for positive change on this. So if you like, they've, they've built their own systems to, to meet a certain requirement and then lobbying in a productive way to actually make sure that the, the, um, the same level is applied to other companies and that they have a competitive advantage as a result because they, they moved quicker. So I think that kind of old argument of saying, I'm just going to wait until we're forced to change uh, is, is increasingly flawed. So that's one. I do think coupled with that, there's a big information gap. And, and I think that's part of what you know, this report is trying to make some contribution to, to addressing, is that there's been a lot of great scientific articles out there talking about these challenges, but this, this translation of what that means to business leaders has often been the missing component. Uh, and for most business leaders, they, they have very limited attention span for hearing about the whole environmental destruction and challenges because they've just got so many other priorities. So it's talking the, the language of business and showing, you know, what does this mean in terms of an EBITDA impact of, of a business that really, we've found, gets it to a different kind of discourse. What is going to get them there? Stick or the carrot? What, it's, it feels to me like you're, you're, you're tossing out the opportunity to make uh, new forms of money, new, new income, and in new and creative ways. Uh, and putting less emphasis on uh, governments and regulators who could then hold these organizations accountable or hold them to a new standard. Where would you fall on the two? Look, I, I think both are important, right? and it, it's, we are going to need both to happen. Uh, but I, I do think that human nature, we tend to respond more positively to opportunities than, than fear. And, and I think that the right way to, to mobilise capital at scale and I'd, I'd emphasize that at scale like we see a lot of activities at the moment that have been driven by corporates and when you look at their share of total investment it's kind of a drop in the bucket and I, I think the only way we get that shift to happen is we we get businesses excited by what is the true potential of this this is this is a business opportunity and I think success for me is, is when we get CEO and corporate leaders who actually for one reason or another don't care at all about biodiversity and, and the environment, but just see this purely as good business. Um, and as much as I would like every leader out there to, to care about this on an emotional manner, I, if we can get them to just drive the right action from whatever kind of motivation, then we're winning. And so that's where we're hoping to get this, this discourse changed and that we start to see this as a real business opportunity. And for those, those business leaders who really want to drive the next level of change in their corporations, these are the kind of opportunities that they should have on their radar, regardless of how bought in they are into um, concern about biodiversity and nature risk. How is the uh, COVID-19 crisis impacting this trajectory? Do you see it accelerating or deaccelerating the effort to create these changes and pursue these new business opportunities? Mm. Look, it's, it, COVID shapes this in multiple different ways. And, it, the first point to mention is that COVID-19 and this biodiversity crisis are inextricably linked. Uh, and just to give you an example, um, when we, we alter nature without fully understanding the, the consequences, this can have devastating implications for humans. So the number of new infectious diseases actually quadrupled in the last 60 years. Natural habitats have been diminished, causing wild animals to live in closer quarters to one another and to humans. 
And that increasing interaction is a big part of the transmission that we're seeing in these infectious diseases. And so, so whilst we're still debating the exact origin of the COVID-19 virus, we do know that 70% of emerging infectious diseases originate from wildlife. So this kind of destruction we're having of biodiversity and, and nature is bringing us increasingly in contact uh, with animals and wildlife. And so it is reasonable to expect that we're going to see, unfortunately, more incidents uh, of these kind of infectious diseases going forward. So COVID-19 is, is, is not going to be a one-off, unfortunately. So that's the, if you like, the, the context. Then when you think about what are the implications for biodiversity action going forward, there's, there's two paths here. And, and we talk a lot about being at a critical junction. I think we, we really are. I'll first of all, I'll talk about the negative path. There is the, the risk that we see that biodiversity now gets lost in the agenda, that we, we start focusing on rebuilding the economy uh, and creating these new jobs and, and we basically relegate biodiversity concerns to the, the second shelf of, of issues. And we're already seeing some of that at the moment in terms of budget cuts. So in some countries, we're seeing things like nature reserves have actually um, been, had some of the most severe cuts in terms of their funding. So there is that, that, that risk. Um, but here's the, the positive element, and this is where I hope we get to. And we, we talk about, and to get the World Economic Forum, we talk about the Great Reset. Uh, there is the opportunity to say, look, actually, as, as this report shows, there's no trade-off here. Business and nature are inextricably linked. And, and the $10 trillion of opportunities in the 395 million jobs, this is the kind of path with, that we should be going down and, and, and going into. Uh, and one of the positive things of COVID-19 is that we have shown that we are capable of listening to science, of changing behaviours, and, and working collectively for a global solution. So this is why I think it's, it's so critical of where we are now, of what we do next. Uh, and it was, it was great to see that some leaders are starting to already articulate plans that, that look for these synergies. So in Europe, we're seeing um, a, a quite ambitious um, recovery act, which puts nature very much at the forefront of this. Um, we saw Joe Biden just released his um, election manifesto and talk about this $2 trillion plan for the climate and um, very much linked to economic development. So it's promising that it's starting to enter the, the discourse more and more. I think it will be interesting to see over the next six to 12 months uh, of, of what are those signs of which track we're starting to head down. You mentioned uh, parts of Europe and the United States. What about China? They're, they're a big player uh, in, this, in this field. What's, what are your views or thoughts about their contribution in this area? Well, if you look across all these elements, you're right that China is uh, going to have a, a huge um, uh, influence in, in all these different areas. So infrastructure in the built environment, we, we tend to think of um, China as sort of overbuilding in some ways of, of cities. Um, but the reality is they've still got a long way to go on their urbanisation journey. And, and just like in here in Southeast Asia, it's increasingly these middleweight cities um, these one to five million, which are going to be the next sources of growth. So making sure that we see those, those best practices um, adopted in their urbanisation plans is going to be crucial. Uh, we have seen some promising things. So just to give you one very specific example. So we've seen in, in some Chinese cities the kind of mandatory source segregation that of, of waste. Uh, and that's actually a crucial enabler for encouraging some of these circular economy systems that I talked about earlier. So there's, there's pieces of that that are coming together, but at the moment it's, a, it's very much a, a patchwork. And so that's going to be crucial within these investment decisions that are coming up, how that gets influenced. We also talk in the report a bit about um, the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, and, and there's been significant concerns raised about the Belt and Road Initiative of its potential impact on, on biodiversity. Um, but there, the, the good news is if you look at a lot of those projects, there's ways that we can. Uh, very much marry biodiversity concerns uh, into those infrastructure build. And in fact, that's one of the opportunity areas that we look at in quite a bit of detail in the report is exactly what it would take to, to make that happen. On the other areas, so food, land, ocean use, um, and around the um, energy and extractive systems, again, China plays a, a crucial role. And, and it's a bit of a mixed bag. We're seeing some elements of real progress, but overall not moving quick enough 
um, for um, what we would what we need to see to address these kind of biodiversity losses. Talking to Chinese firms, it does. Um, I, I have seen a bit of a shift even in the last twelve months around awareness of of some of these biodiversity issues, and I'm not sure exactly what has been the particular driver of that. But it's a lot more in the radar in, in discussions that I've been having with these these business leaders, uh, and so that gives me a source of optimism that it, it is now starting to enter the the the, the conversation in a much stronger way. Uh, and there used to be previously a, quite a big gap between Chinese leaders and some of the leaders that I'd speak to in other parts of the world on some of these issues. But I'm starting to see that gap close, which is uh, which is really positive. So I hope we will start to see some really ambitious. Um, proposals that are coming out from Chinese businesses. So many of these challenges um, defy single market response. They are cross-border and global by nature. Uh, in a time when we see massive decoupling, whether it's the US or China, or a pullback into more self-reliance, uh, whether it's driven by concerns over COVID uh, and contagion, or whether it has to do with just economic uh, um, preservation, where do you feel uh, we are most challenged when it comes to creating the right multilateral organizations to have these conversations and drive some unified change. I, I do think this is a big issue. And, and one of the things that came out uh, of the analysis is that we looked at the 15 big transitions that we examined across those systems of food, land, ocean use, infrastructure and built environment and engine extractives. And, and what was really interesting was that how many sectors they cut across. So in other words, to get those transitions to happen, for most cases, it's not one sector that's going to drive change. It's going to be a whole multitude of, of different sectors that we're going to have to rely on. Um, and to give you one example, if you look at the circular economy, now that touches on sectors ranging from agriculture to advanced manufacturing to electronics to IT and digital communications and even infrastructure and, and the um, urban development. So a range of different sectors. So we're going to have to see that kind of multi-stakeholder collaboration to happen to, to drive that change. Um, and we often use that as a bit of a buzzword, this multi-sector collaboration. It sounds great to do, but really challenging in progress. Uh, we're starting to see examples of that. Um, so we have the Tropical Forest Alliance, which is a group of companies that have come together um, under the World Economic Forum. To, to drive change on tackling deforestation across the supply chain because they realise it gives them the critical scale to actually make the necessary investment and changes that they need. Um, but there's a number of other areas where we just don't see that kind of coalitions, but we desperately need them. Uh, in the report, we talk about a few of them. We talk about um, emerging market sustainable sourcing coalitions. So particularly in markets like China and India, how do we get those key uh, companies in the supply chains to come together to give the right kind of scale and market signals that would allow us to see more sustainable sourcing of, of particularly deforestation linked products such as soy, beef, palm oil and wood. Uh, there's also, I think, public-private partnerships that are needed around uh, the, the world's deltas. So our, our deltas are in crisis. Uh, many of them are sinking, um, primarily because of excessive groundwater pumping and uh, river sediment flow uh, linked to dams and other hydropower. Uh, but there's a huge opportunity in places like the Mekong River um, to actually drive this kind of partnership across different industries to change. Um, and then we come to middleweight cities, which I talked about earlier, that we don't really have, of all the city forums, we don't really have ones that really um, have a, a strong participation from these middleweight cities. So it will be crucially important to drive these new kind of partnerships. How we do that in, in this kind of more challenging environment uh, I think it needs to move from more probably country to country to, to more thematic areas, which I think can maybe be a bit easier to push in, in the current geopolitical environment that we face. Fraser, in 45 minutes, you've largely summarized the greatest single global issues of our time. I commend you for that. It's an extraordinary endeavor. Your, your work is, is, is amazing and, and we, uh, we applaud you for that. Um, we look forward to staying in touch and seeing where this develops sector by sector country by country. Thank you for your time. Dave, thank you. Really enjoyed it. That was my conversation with Fraser Thompson, founder and managing director of Singapore-based Alpha Beta. My conversation with Fraser left me with this burning question. 
Is investing in the new nature economy an opportunity or an imperative? Like all things, I guess it depends on how you look at it. The Alpha Beta study is the second in a planned series of so-called new nature economy reports, and it feels to me a bit like a one-two punch. In the first report, entitled Nature Risk Rising, it was estimated that $44 trillion in economic value, representing nearly half of global GDP, could be sacrificed if we simply keep living and operating as we have for the past half century. It's a path to certain destruction, unsustainable environmentally and life-limiting in all other respects. The second report, as if to say, don't worry, you can save yourself and the world, offers up a smorgasbord of business opportunities. Nature is declining at an unprecedented rate, write the authors. They point out that nearly one million species are extinct or on the verge of extinction as a direct result of human activity. While climate change has received the lion's share of attention in recent years, Fraser and the report point to an even bigger underlying problem, the rapid decline of biodiversity. This raises the question, how big of a problem is it? That leads then to a second question, is there time to do anything about it? It's like saying the ship is sinking, but let's hang out in the boardroom a little longer and draw up a few innovative ideas. I don't mean to be flippant, but the die has been cast and still we ponder the options. So I'm back to the question of the new nature economy as opportunity or imperative. It's imperative, right? What will it take to mobilize the powers that be? Fear hasn't worked. Do you recall the ad campaign a few years back, courtesy of Conservation International? A string of two-minute spots narrated by the likes of Harrison Ford and Julia Roberts. Daunting reminders that, and I quote, nature doesn't need people, people need nature. We all stared and wonder at the raw power of the message, but did it change anything? Hard to say. Pleading doesn't appear to work either. How many of you watched or listened to environmental activist Greta Thunberg urge corporate leaders at Davos this past January to take heed? Our house is still on fire and you're fueling the flames, she told the gathering. Then came COVID. How quickly a universal agenda can be upended. Hijacked by a pandemic that stemmed from, wouldn't you know, the mishandling of rare animals in a Wuhan wet market, you gotta ask yourself, what's it gonna take? The stick clearly hasn't worked. Apparently, we can all take a real beating. Introducing the carrot. Wave $10 trillion of potential business opportunities in front of the very organizations that brought you environmental disaster, and perhaps, like Pavlov's dog, you get the anticipated salivary reaction. Were it so easy? As Fraser points out, to realize even a fraction of these new commercial opportunities, an estimated $2.7 trillion in annualized capital over 10 years will be required. Coordination between public and private interests and across industrial sectors is imperative, he says. But the real saving grace appears to be technology. Fourth industrial revolution grade technology, that is. Including AI, Internet of Things, robotics, and advanced data management. It's all possible, but of course, someone's going to have to pay for it. So, we are left with the ultimate question. In a time when geopolitical decoupling and nationalistic self-reliance is all the rage, how do we globally align our social, environmental, and commercial interests to save the world and save ourselves? Stay tuned. The answers are coming up in the next episode of Inside Asia. Thanks for listening.